0: All right, we are back. We have we put off doing a lot of obituaries in this program of late. We're, we're way behind, but that's because uh, the biggie, Osama bin Laden, has been something we've been talking about now for this will be our third straight week. There's so many strange aspects to this story. But the question of what kind of ally is Pakistan is certainly uh, high on the list. Noted a headline and uh, article from David Sanger in the New York Times, as reprinted in the B, it said, U.S. demands access to terror leaders' widows. Their Pakistan will produce the terror leaders' widows, I guess, was a subject of doubt. The Pakistani uh, a parliament apparently seriously criticized America for conducting this raid uh, without consulting the Pakistanis. Do we have an appropriate uh, sound effect for that, Mr. McMillan? And uh, as for uh, terrorist plots originating in Pakistan, the issue of the uh, 2008 Mumbai attacks uh, has come to the fore due to the fact that there's a trial taking place that apparently is going to name names. According to the Wikipedia entry on this, there were more than 10 coordinated shooting and bombing attacks across Mumbai in November of 2008 conducted by Islamic terrorists who invaded from Pakistan. The terrorists who carried out the reconnaissance before the attacks later stated that the attacks were conducted with the support of Pakistan's secret service, the ISI. In fact, to quote from The Guardian, Pakistan spy agency's alleged role in Mumbai terrorist attacks, attacks to be revealed. Witness in U.S. trial expected to say ISA officers were complicit in the 2008 terrorist attacks that killed more than 160 people. Notes the article, a former member of Lakshar A. Taiba, a violent Pakistan-based extremist group with close links to the Pakistani military, is expected to tell a court in Chicago that ISA officers were complicit in the November terrorist attacks. This trial is coming at a critical time, with relations between Islamabad and Washington at a new low following the death of Osama bin Laden. The hearings could acutely embarrass the ISI, which is suspected by many in the U.S. and elsewhere, of protecting the man responsible for the 9-11 attacks. The trial is also likely to fuel pressure in the U.S. for high levels of financial aid to Pakistan to be cut. The article notes that official court documents in the case have so far played down the role of the ISI, still officially considered by the CIA and other American agencies as a key ally in the hunt for Al-Qaeda operatives in Pakistan. They avoid mentioning the Pakistani spy service by name, for example. We will continue to follow this one. All right, in the, uh, in the continuing lack of recovery we're seeing in the U.S. economy, uh, higher fuel prices are certainly not helping. How about this item from Kevin Hall and Robert Rankin from the McClatchy newspapers? And again, we, uh, we take our hat off to the good people at McClatchy for the fine reporting they're doing. Headline from their article is, speculators push fuel prices higher, noting that investment banks, hedge funds, rule in the futures market. The article starts out noting that uh, Wall Street is not the conventional explanation for high fuel prices, but it's one that facts point to. Analysts usually say that high prices stem simply from supply and demand. They mean demand for oil and gas is rising and supplies aren't keeping up, so people bid up their price. But global and U.S. supplies are plentiful and demand is stable. So that's not it. And the analysts say it's because the markets are afraid that the Middle East turmoil will interrupt oil supplies, so nervous buyers are bidding up prices to ensure they lock in a contract for oil, just in case it's scarce later. Article notes there's probably some truth to that, but after five months of turmoil, there's been no significant impact on Middle East oil supplies, even as prices have seesawed. So that's not credible either. What is credible? Well, the fact that about 70% of contracts for future oil deliveries are now bought by financial speculators, largely big investment banks and hedge funds who never take control of the oil. They just flip the contracts for a quick profit. Michael, quotes Michael Greenberger, University of Maryland law professor, who in the 1980s headed the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, saying, I'm convinced that speculators are actively manipulating prices. Now, I know this is shocking. The idea that Wall Street is working for its own interest, contrary to the rest of us? I don't know. It could be. I mean, I do hate to go out on a limb. I mean, when you can out out bad guy the oil boys, (laughs) you're doing something. Apparently, ExxonMobil Chief Executive Rex Tillerson noted in testimony before the Senate Finance Committee last week that this year's oil prices don't make any economic sense, although that's not quite how he put it. He said that current fundamentals and production costs would dictate oil in the range of $60 to $70 a barrel. That's at least $43 cheaper than this year's high of $113, reached on April 29th and again on May 2nd. Here's the part I like about the article best. But Tillerson declined to opine on the role of speculators, saying only that the price of oil will be whatever it will be. Yeah, parts is parts. And speaking of uh, interesting pronouncements from executives, how about this one from Louis Calamari, CEO of Philip Morris? He notes, you know, it's not that hard to give up smoking. This was said at the company's annual shareholder meeting in New York. This came in the wake of uh, Philip Morris sparring with members of an anti-tobacco and other uh, corporate accountability groups during which a nurse named Elizabeth Gunderson from UCSF cited statistics that tobacco use kills more than 400,000 Americans and 5 million people worldwide. Oh, by the way, the total combination from all illegal drugs is less than a tenth of that. Gunderson said a patient told her last week that of all the addictions he's beaten, crack, cocaine, meth, cigarettes have been the most difficult. And I can tell you this correspondent during his medical training conducted an unofficial survey of a Drug addicts who were hospitalized, I came in contact with, and I would ask him which is easier to give up heroin or meth, as the case may be, or cigarettes? At least three quarters of the time, the answer came back definitively oh, I, I can give up the drugs, but I can't give up smoking. Therefore, I tend to dispute the statement made by Mr. Camilleri. It's actually quite hard to give up smoking. By the way, he himself is a longtime smoker. And back in April of 2009, in a Business Week article, he was quoted as saying that he'd quit only once for about three months when he had a cold. But you do have to admit that after the meeting they held where in which the company reiterated its position that, quote, tobacco products are addictive and harmful, unquote, that, well, that's, that's progress. At least they're admitting that. All right, we don't have time for too much left here on the show. I do want to cite an article by Tom Newton in the Sacramento Bee, which captured my attention about where Mark Twain roughed it on Lake Tahoe. Back in high school, I had a chance to read Mark Twain's classic book, Roughing It, where he described, among other things, uh, hanging out on the shores of Lake Tahoe. And apparently where that uh, camping took place has been a subject of controversy, a rather heated controversy. There was a move afoot before the Nevada State Board on Geographic Names to uh, to label a small cove on the Nevada side after to name it after Mark Twain. This has caused some Californians to say no, they've got it all wrong. He must be camped on the California side. Apparently, Bob Stewart, who is a member of the Nevada State Board of Geographic Names, is convinced that Twain was in Nevada, whereas David. Antonucci, a retired water quality engineer from Tahoe's west shore, contends that it surely was in the, on the California side near present-day Tahoe Vista. After debating it back and forth, uh, the, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names voted 5-4 last week to not name the cove after Mark Twain. And by the way, dear listener, if you have not read Mark Twain's Roughing It, do yourself a favor and go get a copy. Uh, One of the nurses in my clinic heard me uh, talking about it some months ago and went out and grabbed a copy and (laughs) was happily quoting it back to me. I do want to note that perhaps my favorite quote from the entire book was based on Twain's description of that time he spent at Tahoe, which had him say, Three months of camp life on Lake Tahoe would restore an Egyptian mummy to his pristine vigor. Of course, even Twain realized that he may be overstating the case just a bit so he added i do not mean the oldest and driest mummies of course but the fresher ones now if i've known the lineup just to i take it all my- I'm sorry to say, it appears we're just about out of time, so we want to thank Norman Lloyd, along with Bruce Bronstein, for their contribution, as well as our old pal, Will Durst. We'd like to talk a bit about the developments regarding Arnold Schwarzenegger, but frankly, we just uh, don't have any time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. And Mr. McMillan, I guess, uh, rather than talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger, let's just go out with some appropriate bumper music, shall we? I Everybody ought to have a maid Everybody ought to have a serving girl A loyal and unswerving girl Who's quiet and a mouse We're looking forward to talking about this one You're listening to Radio Parallax I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time about, Oh, oh, wouldn't she be delightful Living in Giving out Everybody ought to have a maid Someone who you hire when you're short of help to offer to get from, from through the attic. Chattering in the cellar. Clattering in the kitchen. Flattering in the bedroom. Pottering all around the house. I'm a virgin. How is she? A maid.